0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is pressing the Senate to approve a more than $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure deal. Republicans also want 50 billion dollars Uh, more for military infrastructure improvements. Meanwhile, the Delta variant continues to spread around the United States. This as uh, employment goes up, 943,000 new jobs reported by the Bureau of Labor uh, Statistics. Uh, However, uh, lockdowns are continuing around uh, the world as mask mandates are uh, returned as concerns about COVID fatalities uh, increase again for the first time in several months. China is building hundreds of additional ballistic missile silos uh, in Xinjiang and in the wake of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and trade show, some new ideas for new strategies for sea power and naval aviation. Joining us to discuss the week in Washington and well beyond are Ilan Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council, Byron Callan of the independent Washington research firm Capital Alpha Partners, Brian Clark, who heads the Center for Defense Concepts and Technologies at the Hudson Institute Think Tank, and his colleague, Dr. Patrick Cronin, who uh, directs Hudson's Asia Asia Pacific Program, and former Pentagon Comptroller Dr. Dov Zakheim, who, among his many affiliations, is associated with the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Everybody, great to have you on the program. And before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. And General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And check out our weekly Cavas Ships podcast with our contributing editor, Chris Cavas, and producer, Chris Cervello, take a deep dive into naval issues each week, this week analyzing Key takeaways from Sea air, space, where our coverage was sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries uh, and General Electric Marine. FinContieri Marinette Marine, of course, sponsors our naval coverage. Dove, uh, you know, very busy week. Uh, Iron Mike Hurson is on uh, vacation uh, for the next couple of weeks, well-earned, but Washington still uh, grinds ahead. Start us off, walk us through where we are on infrastructure and why Republicans are pushing for an extra $50 billion in military infrastructure spending.
1: Well, I, there's no way I can fill Mike's shoes. Uh, as far as I understand it, the uh, infrastructure bill is still moving ahead. Uh, they've won at least a procedural vote, so that's a good thing. And uh, last time I checked, uh, the minority leader McConnell is still on board with that. The $50 billion, I and mean, you got to remember, $50 billion is roughly 5% of this entire infrastructure drill. Um, at least as the administration is pushing it, and the uh, group of 10 uh, agreed to. Uh, That $50 billion uh, is for uh, infrastructure that's peculiarly for defense. It's been pushed, and this is significant, I think. Richard Dick Shelby, who is the uh, ranking on uh, appropriations, uh, is behind it, but so is Jim Inhofe. And uh, there's a lot of money going to Navy shipyards, both private and public, and last time I checked, there aren't too many shipyards in Oklahoma, uh, but the Republican ranking member of armed services is still supporting it, as is Senator Wicker from Mississippi, of course, who has the uh, facility down in Pascagoula, private yard and, and uh, a lot of shipbuilding going on there. They, they, the Navy wants to do this, particularly on the, on the Navy yards. Uh, there's been some improvement already, for instance, up in Portsmouth, where near where I am right now, uh, but they still need more. And it's not just that. There's money going uh, also to Coast Guard shipyards. There's money going for uh, depot modernization. There's money going for ammunition plants, training and testing test and training ranges. And one of the things we've been talking about over the weeks is you know, how well-trained are our folks? Well, you put more money into that, and that certainly helps, about $4 billion for that. They've got money for 5G wireless networking. Uh, so you're you're looking at a, a, a infrastructure package that would really, really boost defense's ability to do what it keeps saying it wants to do, which is to sort of stay ahead of China and do it in a way that allows our forces to be as well-trained and as capable as possible. Um, Having said all of that, will it get in? Um, My guess is it's got a pretty good shot. Uh, All these all these proposals uh, affect an awful lot of senators. Uh, It's going to they'll affect an awful lot of jobs. There's military construction as well. Uh, And so uh, this one, I think, might well go through. But, you know, Mike Herson would know a lot better and he probably would say whatever he would say.
0: Um, I I would uh, point out that I think there is going to be bipartisan support for this because if you've been listening to the the majority, uh, Jack Reed has a very important uh, shipbuilding uh, facility at Quanticet Point, which is critical for submarine production. Uh, You've got Joe uh, Portney, uh, obviously representing uh, a state that produces those submarines, uh, the Democrat from Connecticut. And, And we've heard this from Elaine Luria, we've heard it from both uh, Virginia senators as well. Uh, And especially from Navy leaders, uniformed and civilian who've said that the ability for the nation to generate sea power is actually the limiting factor is infrastructure, Uh, not having enough dry dock availability, not having enough, uh, you know, the the roof at Bremerton, right? Former Navy secretary, uh, Richard Spencer used to talk about that all the time, right? I mean, you're telling me that a a hundred year old roof at Bremerton is materially impacting the ability to generate sea power and it's
1: true. and people need to realize that we're not only building ships in, in the usual places, which is to say, you know, Mississippi and, and Connecticut and Rhode Island and so on, and Virginia, obviously, but in other states as well. And some of those states are blue states, and their senators are still going to vote for this stuff, I'm pretty sure.
0: Um, exactly. And we should say, you know, Marinette, right? Finkontieri, Marinette Marine is is in uh, Wisconsin. We've Wisconsin. got a on the Gulf Coast, and of course, California shipyards uh, right. are are still in the game. Last time anybody checked, Byron, let me uh, bring you into this. You're a little bit concerned about the economic impact of uh, the Delta variant as it spreads, right? Very positive employment figures uh, figures from BLS as we uh, just heard. Walk us through some of your uh, your concerns there, um, and you know, because I thought it was really really interesting that at Navy League the vibe was it's great to be here and see everybody holy crap, Delta spreading, am I really at a super spreader event? And should I be wearing my mask, right? I mean, this was sort of the yin and the yang of the of, of the event. And, and I should say more broadly, if you want to, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about some key takeaways uh, from, from Navy League uh, with Brian, you two were good enough to join us this week. But sort of give us your sense on where you think the pandemic is going and how that could actually have a material financial impact, depending on how it goes, because the United States has spent a lot of money it, that's this is all predicated to an economic rebound. Uh, no inflation and a whole bunch of other things happening to make sure that we don't catapult into a potential recession.
2: Let's really. So today we had a great unemployment report come out, and uh, you know, by a lot of measures the us. economy is doing very well here. But we are in a period again, you know, with the delta variant, uh, particularly the impacts on some of the states where vaccinations or vaccination rates are low. You kind of wonder how is this gonna flow through uh, economic behavior over the balance of this year into the fall. And I think probably more importantly, what I was really pivoting off of was just how this is gonna affect stability in other parts of the world. Um, You know, prior to the pandemic, you had some pretty interesting mass demonstrations in places like Chile. Sudan, Algeria, uh, Lebanon, Iraq, um, and more recently, you've had some very disturbing outbreaks of uh, civil violence in countries like South Africa. So if we really are going to go into another phase, and I don't know if we're on phase four, five, six, or two, um, but if we really are going to go into another phase where The economic recovery on a global basis is going to be subdued. You're still going to have these audits of government performance and how they they handled the pandemic. Um, You know, are you going to see more unrest in countries like Cuba, Iran, Iraq, um, places that are that are going to have a direct bearing on U.S. security interests? So it's just something to keep in mind. Um, I point people to some papers that the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, had done about kind of broader macroeconomic stability or instability as a result of pandemics and how, you know, there's one paper in particular, I believe that was published in May that talked about kind of the long tail uh, and the macroeconomic impact that pandemics historically have. So it's just something I think people ought to be aware of uh, in the context of particularly today where, hey, may, maybe the U.S. is turning a corner, um, but boy, we I think we still have a long way to go here.
0: And and uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, right, uh, the White House's uh, chief advisor on these matters, said that hey, look, we've also got to keep an eye out for other more virulent strains of the virus that might be coming down the road at us, right? Because just as you went from the alpha to the delta, there's now potentially a more even more virulent uh, lambda strain, uh, I believe it's it's being called. Correct me if I'm wrong, anybody. Uh, and you know, on each one of these, there is a question about whether the vaccines that we have out, whether the Moderna, the Pfizer, or the J and right? I mean, there's it's a, it's a, it's the, you know, the jury is still out about whether the J and J vaccine even covers you for the uh Delta. Um, you know, is that the kind of thing that you're talking that could put a real kink in this plan, especially if, you know, as we go into the fall and right, th- there's a tendency of sort of seeing this as, you know, the vaccine may be good for a year, maybe better for six months. I think we're sort of plumbing the outer edges of that. But what happens if we get into something that's a lot worse further downstream?
2: Well, yeah, and I think it also, you know, it's going to be interesting. The impacts, frankly, the defense industrial base came through COVID 19 in fairly good order. Um, you know, there were some disruptions, for example, with some of the shipyards, uh, F 35 production was impacted. You know, some of the states where vaccinations are very low are also very important. For U.S. defense manufacturing, so it's just something to kind of keep an eye on. Again, um, you know, you mentioned the Lambda variant. I don't know where we're going to get to a Zeta variant, but that's probably in the future. And and you know, the, the more this can be kind of controlled and reined in, uh, you know, the sooner we're going to get back to some semblance of, of normality. But uh, you know, the the Delta variant and the evidence we're seeing, even I'm in Connecticut right now. I mean, we had a contractor doing some work on a deer fence and just got an email today that uh, one of their employees got COVID-19 and they're not showing up for another two weeks. So, you know, that's highly local, highly anecdotal, but I think you're going to see more of that popping up.
0: It's going to be interesting to see whether or not there's a caseload uh, increase in the wake of uh, Navy League. And obviously we'll see that soon enough. We certainly hope not everybody was saying they were vaccinated. But the challenge, of course, is whether or not people were actually va- uh, vaccinated. Uh, Patrick, you're kind enough to be joining us from vacation. So we're going to change up the order a little bit so that you can talk and then uh, get back to uh, vacation with uh, with your uh, family. Uh, Beijing is building uh, several hundred new intercontinental ballistic uh, missile uh, silos, indicating the nation is, uh, is looking to upgrade its nuclear arsenal from the 200 or so weapons that they now have uh, in their inventory, that makes a lot of sense, because the United States has spent the last decade sort of saying, hey, we'll, we'll strike the, you know, Chinese mainland that will, I mean, at some point, China may not want its mainland struck any more than the thought, you know, we're going to go nuclear if China strikes Long Beach, right? Uh, so um, that, that makes sense. But, but walk us through what we know about the Chinese program, what is it they're doing, the number of weapons they actually have, because, you know, some of these statistics are misleading right? Um, China may have actually a much larger nuclear arsenal than we fully, fully recognize. And what's their public rationale for for doing so?
3: Well, thank you, Vago. What seems to be clear is that in this decade, the 2020s, the Chinese are finally uh, officially moving away from their minimal deterrent uh, posture with their nuclear force and toward uh, maybe a doubling, tripling, who knows, maybe more uh, of of a mostly ground and sea-based nuclear inventory. And um, what we've seen over the last two months released by two uh, excellent uh, research organizations using publicly available overhead uh, satellite data is that there seem to be about 250 new ICBM silos being uh, built in Xinjiang and neighboring Gansu province in the, uh, in the west uh, of China. Um, and this doubling or tripling of, uh, of their ICBM force, because these may also have multiple uh, and almost surely will have multiple uh, reentry vehicles uh, on on these new DF-41, we suspect, largely uh, deployed ICBMs. Um, they may not go into all 250 uh, tubes they or, or silos. They may uh, use a shell game akin to the MX uh, ICBM scheme that the United States had uh, almost implemented in the 1970s but was canceled by President Carter. Um, But the point is that the Chinese, along with their SSBN fleet that will be growing to about eight boomers by uh, uh, later this decade, are going to have more than 500 ICBMs. Um, It could be double that. We really don't know. um, And people want to argue over the numbers. But I think the point is that the Chinese are going to change their defense posture, the nuclear posture, to a launch on warning system, which is what the Russians and the Americans have maintain. So with a, a solid fuel ICBM ready to go, um, you have a deterrent effect that's much greater than if, uh, if you don't have a ready deterrent effect. And you, and you have a bigger capability that means you can't really strike that capability without knowing that there's going to be a retaliatory uh, sort of inventory left. And, and the Chinese are essentially calling America's bluff here on the nuclear force. They're saying, uh, you keep talking about these war games maybe over Taiwan, for instance, where you have to escalate up to the nuclear level. Well, the Chinese are not going to just live with that anymore. They're going to say, you cannot do that. We're going to checkmate that. You can't escalate to the nuclear levels. you are going to have to consider fighting this at a theater level. But they have a lot of theater missiles, both nuclear and conventionally capable. And so you're going to have to fight us at a a gray zone level. (laughs) So the Chinese are keeping us from deterring their aggression by being able to escalate And as a result, the competition is both more fraught and risky, but it's also um, probably going to be kept at a lower level of violence or coercion. And that's what the Chinese like, because they're getting their way. They're incrementally building their influence and control over over their region. Um, And there's little the United States can do in terms of military threats to stop them, because now we won't be able to escalate to a nuclear level without really risking catastrophic war. And when you think... That uh, This is the anniversary today of the, uh, of the bombing of Hiroshima. Um, you know, this is a, a time when nuclear d- disarmament and dialogue are not exactly advancing around the world, just the opposite. Uh, countries like China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, uh, they're thinking about boosting their nuclear deterrent capabilities. And that's what China showing us and showing the world right now.
0: Um, I I should point out, though, right in the in the nuclear uh, conflicts, uh, conventional conflicts have been less deadly, which is what almost every nuclear strategist starts out, whether it's Chaz Richard or Chile Chilton um, used to uh, have that as a standard uh, part of their presentation. Then, in fact, this could be a significantly stabilizing function uh, overall and and something that keeps the peace. Right. And and so one other question I want to ask you before you go uh, briefly is. We, we've now had a succession of senior leaders talk about the defense of Taiwan explicitly. John Hayton was talking about a war game that we lost, and it was about a defense of Taiwan uh, scenario. He said, we certainly have a deterrent capability today. The issue about the war game was if we stay on the course we're on and the Chinese stay on the course they're on, we will lose that deterrent ability in about a decade or more um, you know, uh, former Indo-Pacific commander uh, Davidson had mentioned that he has sees a, a smaller window of us being able to deter, say, about six years or so, if or decade, I, said, I think he said. I can't remember if it was six years or a decade. Whereas Lung Aquilino is saying the United States can defend Taiwan. So the issue is folks are talking about defense of Taiwan explicitly. Is, is this a, a messaging difference that actually increases the likelihood of deterring conflict? In the region because china has said they're going to do it but not if you extend a defensive or even better a nuclear umbrella to taiwan
3: well china would like to uh get their way on taiwan and right now they're trying to psych out taiwan and the region and the americans as well that this is a losing proposition and kind of give it up um and some have ar- argued that the one thing that the United States should not do right now is to um, provoke China regarding Taiwan scenarios because chi- China has an upper hand and they might actually pull the trigger. I think that's largely uh, a bluff. China is gonna use coercion um, and they may move toward a blockade situation eventually if they feel uh, they-, they have to uh, push back on Ch- Taiwan's independence. But at the same time, um, military action over Taiwan is not the most likely scenario. It's a scenario that is fear, but not, not as likely. So China is playing a psychological game here, largely, but they are also trying to hi- highlight a trend that they want to create. The, the reality, though, is that trend has largely gone against them, not in terms of the military balance. That's, that's gone in China's favor over recent decades. But the psychological... Um, feeling in Taiwan of uh, feeling different from the mainland uh, has not gone in the direction that the party state in Beijing wants. And they're losing that proposition. And the more that they're heavy handed over Taiwan, the more they'll they'll be sort of make every other state wary of uh, of China in its future, even if China has a greater military capability vis-a-vis Taiwan in the growing years. I mean, Indo-PACOM has just announced they are ready for all contingencies. Uh, I believe them. But at the same time. Once you start using force over a scenario in Asia against China, all bets are off. We really don't know what what would be possible.
0: Patrick, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great vacation. Thank you. Thank you. Um, uh... Brian, uh, I want to go to you uh, and uh, you know get get your sense, right? Uh, you're uh, a first order uh, military strategist. You've been looking at uh, what the United States Navy has to do better, whether or not it's with the fleet or, or with uh, Naval Air Forces. Um, you just uh, produced two with your uh, co-conspirator in crime at Hudson, Tim Walton, uh, a series of thoughts. And you uh, and Byron uh, were both at uh, Navy League uh, in person. The first, walk us through some key takeaways. Byron, if you want to jump in on this as well, after a couple of days of reflection, uh, would be be worthwhile. I mean, sort of my sense was, through nobody's fault, uh, you know, a bit of a nothing burger. We're in a transition period to a new secretary. Uh, I think everybody acknowledges the Navy doesn't really have a full bead on it. In fact, the nation doesn't. But we're also at an inflection point and things are changing. But when you put the helm over, the head doesn't follow sometimes as quickly as you would like. Um, you know, walk, walk us through what the key takeaways were from your standpoint, and then um, your your two pieces and 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 what they mean and how they could actually help the Navy get to where it needs to be.
4: Yeah, thanks, Fago. Um, yeah, so I, I agree. In a lot of ways, we didn't get a big big picture vision for the future of the Navy because there is this really lack of leadership at the top. You know, We don't have a secretary. There's not really a clear mandate for the Navy as to what it's supposed to do. The budget doesn't reveal a sense of priority for the Navy or even what the Navy is supposed to be doing. Um, So there's a lot of unknowns out there. Um, I'd say a couple of big takeaways from the CR space were one, um, this idea of focusing on future technologies um, the divest to invest, you know, the, the cute term there, uh, is, is, re- was reflected in a lot of the senior leadership's discussions, whether they were Navy people or other services people. For example, we had two senior army leaders, uh, general Milley, the joint, the chairman of the joint chiefs, um, and general Dickinson, right. Who's the, uh, head of space, Co- space command, um, both speak, both talked about the importance of new technologies. Um, obviously Navy leadership did the same thing. Um, the CNO, um, had a bit of an old own goal when he sort of, uh, criticized industry for lobbying for force structure. But that was, again, reflective of this idea that they would like to divest of, of some existing force structure and not buy some of the current systems in an effort to put money against future technologies. Um, the, the Navy strategy really kind of became clear, at least this near-term strategy, which doesn't really have a clear vision, but it's a strategy of, nonetheless of, you know, focus uh, investment on uh, o and operations and support to deal with the today fight. So to deal with the challenges that, you know, Admiral Davidson and Mike Studeman out at PACOM have identified. Um, in terms of the near term Chinese challenge and then put money towards R&D to address that what's going to happen in next 10 years what do we need to have for the fleet of that time frame and 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 pay for both of those by reducing procurement uh, and by offloading some existing force structure that has a pretty sizable operations and support bill associated with them so that strategy really came out Um, a lot of the individual presentations when you walk the floor and listen to the system command presentations they really emphasize this You know focus on future technology and the future fleet um and not not very much about the current uh industrial base i was i was surprised at how little the shipbuilding industrial base was discussed um even though that's been obviously a major focus um uh, of recent uh years in terms of keeping it's healthy um there was a, a pretty good discussion though i would say about the broader uh, maritime industrial base. So not just the shipbuilding industrial base, but the maritime industry, the the maritime power that the nation has, to use that term, uh, which gets to one of the articles that Tim Walton and I wrote this week, which is looking at a national maritime strategy that gets beyond just the military capabilities of the Navy, Coast Guard, and Marine Corps, but instead just expands out to talk about, well, how are we using all of our maritime capabilities, which, which China does very ably. You know, they've expanded their shipbuilding base, not just Military, but also commercial. They have, they're the largest, they own the largest shipping companies. Um, They have an enormous control over the maritime infrastructure worldwide. Um, So they've really expanded their cable
0: lane, cable 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 lane, lane, for uh, example, which is absolutely critical.
4: Right, port port operations, cable lane, if you wanna get anything done in the maritime domain at any scale, um, you have to get to China. <laughs> you wanna build a, a dry dock, you're going to China, maybe Korea. Um, so it's just amazing the degree to which China has been able to get its arms around the maritime industry writ large. Um, which gives them a degree of of potential influence and control that could be really helpful in peacetime, you know, as opposed to focusing only on war. So we really said we need to get a national maritime strategy that gets beyond just talking about what the Navy and Marine Corps and Air Coast Guard are going to do when the fighting starts. But we have to think about the 99% of the time before the fighting starts. uh, And why are we positioning ourselves? And there's, and gets to the ship, the uh, infrastructure bill that you guys just got discussed. I mean, there's opportunities there to expand the U S industrial base and make it healthier Um, make it better able to support the Jones Act fleet, et cetera. Um, One note on that though, um, looking at the public shipyards, I had a long discussion with some of the uh, Navy NAVSEA leaders uh, last week. uh, And uh, one of their concerns was even if they get this money, where does the work go while they're uh, upgrading the shipyards? They're going to need to offload some of their work to private industry. And private industry doesn't have the capacity to support a bunch more overhauls uh, of nuclear-powered ships to allow the public shipyards right. to be renovated. So there's a concern there that we need, do we need another shipyard? You know, that's one idea, you know, that we should start working on ways to invest in a new shipyard to get that, that swing capacity. Um, but there's, there's clearly a need to invest in both the public and private side. Um, so yeah, I was a little surprised at the at the degree to which that we talked about the maritime industrial base, because which was very encouraging. But we didn't talk about some of the traditional ideas, the shipbuilding industrial base, uh, and then aviation didn't get a lot of uh, getting, didn't get a lot of love. Which gets to the other article that I wrote this this week with Tim was to saying that the Navy needs to rethink its aviation strategy. We've um, you know, we spend as much on airplanes in some years as we do on ships. During the 2010s, we spent more money each year on sh- airplanes than we did in, on ships in the Navy. Um, yet airplanes were hardly discussed at all this week, except with regard to NGAD and the strategy for developing NGAD, uh, and then maybe some of the program briefs on, on the existing aircraft systems. Um, but the Navy is going to have to really rethink how it does aviation, because its aircraft are increasingly irrelevant in the ranges they're going to have to operate, you know, helicopters, strike fighters, et cetera. Um, And there's opportunities with unmanned systems that are not really being fully exploited. So the Navy needs to start breaking down some of the boundaries between carrier based air and land-based air and between um, rotary wing and fixed wing aircraft and between Marine aircraft and Navy aircraft, uh, because uh, unless they do that, they're not going to be able to actually have an aviation capability that's relevant uh, in the kind of environment you're going to face in the, in the Western Pacific. Um, So that, that was the focus of that article. And and this week we didn't really get a lot of encouraging news uh, about where they're going with aviation. Each of the tribes in aviation very much keeps to themselves and doesn't want to interact or support the activities of the others.
0: And now a word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. Astonishing state of affairs for a service that was a pioneer in unmanned technology in the 1980s to give battleships greater range and precision, or rather greater precision at range. And, you know, just not managed to just move the needle very much. Byron, let me bring you in briefly uh, with with some of your thoughts. And uh, both Ilan and Dove, you've both been very patient. But we're gonna we're gonna be tackling all the problems uh, that we have in a region of the world almost exclusively for the for the next 15 or so or so minutes. But Byron, sort of give us your sense. You know, after having uh, had a moment of reflection, you you put a great note out talking about Navy culture, uh, one of the manned. Um, uh, uh, a navy leader, uh, the, a navy leader associated with manned platforms, made a joke about sort of unmanned, uh, you know, not being real war fighters. I think he meant that in jest, uh, of of course. But you know, you you noted it as, as sort of an interesting cultural uh, highlight. Sort of give us your sense on, you know, how your thoughts about about the week and key events have evolved.
2: Well, let me just pivot. And I'll amplify because I agree with a lot of what Brian talked about. I mean. I think three three thoughts here. Um, some of the displays, for example, Huntington Ingalls uh, display at, at Sierra Space talked a lot about the automation and the technology that they're trying to bring into their shipyards. I think they've invested over two billion dollars in trying to modernize their yards. And so, um, you know, when you you think about things like automatic welding uh, machines, it's it's it actually is encouraging from that standpoint. Um, And, you know, as much as people, and I think Brian's very correct in pointing out, you know, this isn't something that you can easily turn on or turn off. You know, you kind of have to remind yourself every couple of years, I shouldn't say, (laughs) the the nation needs to remind itself every couple of years that these are skills, uh, even, you know, replacing people with uh, automatic welding in some processes, you know, it can still be eight to 10 years to qualify uh, and fully train a nuclear uh, welder in, in these yards. So <clears throat> these are skills that you have to take care of. They're perishable um, and they just need to be minded, you know, going forward. And so I think it's kind of a segue into the other debate that's going on, which is, okay, <clears throat> if the Navy's going to go to smaller amphibious ships, Um, And that's going to involve a different set of shipyards. How might that impact the capacities and capabilities at at the large yards that do this kind of work? Uh, Pascagoula for for, um, Huntington Ingalls and possibly NASCO for General Dynamics. So that's something else that really wasn't discussed in some of the public fora during the event, but certainly came up in some of the conversations that I had at the show. Um, And I... I I would agree, you know, kind of the top of the conversation about it's a transition that that the Navy's going through. And so there are cultures. I appreciate Brian's uh, use of the word tribes. And, you know, if if you're a SWO and you you think of the world as terms of uh, large surface combatants, you see this little unmanned thing kind of bobbing in the water next to you. You know, the, the analogy I likened it to was the uh, the guy standing on the, the deck of a battleship in the 1920s wondering about these little canvas-covered aircraft that were buzzing around him uh, in the day. And, you know, maybe the same analogy could be made. It's a cultural shift that the organization is going to have to go through, and it's going to need champions to really push it through. And I think Admiral Gilday has talked about a measured approach here, but as we discussed during the show here, uh, during the show last week, um, it, it, or earlier this week, uh, it, it, it's something that probably needs to be accelerated. It being the testing and, and getting these things out in the fleet to, to evaluate them. Because I think that's really the only way you're gonna get more conclusive buy and by the institution.
0: And uh, uh, Brian, I I think you uh, pointed out right that um, some of these battle force experiments have at least been testing some of this capability to to sort of get to the cultural change of it. I I think we're on the cusp of change, but it's not yet moving as quickly, I think, as we need to. Would that be a good way of putting it?
4: Absolutely. I mean, these integrated battle problems, the large uh, scale exercise that the Navy is doing are kind of the first steps in the right direction uh, but it's gonna take time to s- sort of bake that through the entire Navy. And uh, there's a lot of resistance to it culturally a- as um, Byron was just saying. Also money's gonna be a problem. Um, you know, At the congressional breakfast I moderated, um, I'll note that the com- Comptroller uh, or Admiral uh, Gumberton, who's the Assistant uh, Secretary of the Navy for Comptroller um, or Deputy Assistant Secretary, he's, he noted that uh, the Navy was currently about $15 billion misaligned uh, if they get a l- year long CR, uh, meaning they had to move $15 of billion uh, one place to another. Also, he said their O&S accounts are going to be underfunded if they get a year-long CR, um, as opposed to, I think, what a lot of Republicans might be thinking on the Hill. So that, that money problem is going to be a thing that continues to, you know, prevent the Navy from executing this transition more nimbly, I suppose.
0: Um, I I should also point out for people to uh, check out uh, our interviews and coverage uh, from Navy League, including with uh, Rear Admiral Casey Moten, the program executive officer for uh, small manned and unmanned uh, combatants, and uh, the president and CEO of Huntington Ingalls Industries, uh, Mike Petters, who talked to us about the employment situation and how many people they've brought in. Continuing to invest in human capital and also physical plan. We also talked to uh, Raytheon's Wes Kramer and uh, Lockheed Martin's John Rambo. Ilan, you have been extremely patient, uh, and so have you, Doug. Go
1: ahead, Doug. Please. Yeah, on this, on this last point, um, I, I can understand what the Navy's saying. However, when I was Comptroller, Rumsfeld basically forced uh, unmanned aerial vehicles down the Air Force's throat. And yet we got the same pushback that you just heard about. Well, there's no money. We'll lose money from other things. And basically, we went ahead and funded this thing. And the Air Force came to terms with it. And now it has mixed wings and all that. That's what really has to happen here. If you want to. And admittedly, the Navy was was actually was the Marine Corps that was the first to get what was then called RPVs. I know about that because I helped them get it in 1983. A long time ago but it's the air force that now uses these things in a way the navy just still doesn't and the and the pressure has to come from the top all the way the top yeah. and if it doesn't then yeah you're going to have just constant pushback from the tribes as brian says yeah but absolutely
0: but uh the uh, dove right Four CNOs in a row will tell you that we tried to put pressure on naval aviation to change and it has not, Gary. Yeah, because
1: because I'm not referring to CNOs. The CNOs are in the right place on this. Gilday is absolutely right. When I say the top, I mean the Secretary of Defense. It wasn't the CNO that was able to turn, it wasn't rather the chief staff of the Air Force that was able to turn the Air Force around. It was Rumsfeld.
0: And I should also point out to the audience that Dev wrote an excellent piece that just ran in the Hill. Biden needs a tougher line on Venezuela to send a message to Iran. Speaking of which, Ilan Berman has been exceptionally patient uh, during this conversation. And so you're going to be our highlighted guest now for the next couple of minutes, Ilan. Uh, First, congratulations on the new podcast uh, on uh, misinformation. Uh, Your first episode just came out and you had uh, the director of uh, Radio uh, Free Europe and Radio uh, Liberty. Uh, Jamie Fly uh, joined you. Uh, I should say that as a, my dad as a Cold Warrior in the early part of the Cold War also uh, was a broadcaster uh, for both of those august uh, institutions uh, out to behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so let's start off with what has been a very busy week. Uh, the administration uh, has been withdrawing U.S. forces from uh, Afghanistan, uh, as well as uh, changing the combat mission in Iraq, continuing uh, discussions, obviously, with Tehran to try to get to a a, a new nuclear deal plus. Uh, and yet, what we've seen is that the Taliban have overrun uh, Zaranj, uh, the capital of Nemez, uh province, as the uh, U.S. and foreign forces have abandoned. There's this sense uh, on the U.S. side, which I think is the most absurd thing I've ever heard, that that somehow, like, the peace deal is going to stop this. Uh, if anything, I was talking to a foreign diplomat, and they they think the only reason why Kabul and Um, you know, the big cities, Kandahar may not fall, is that the Taliban will want sort of a more Western friendly face that can at least get aid for the country that they can then uh, duct off uh, to to themselves. Uh, You you know, and and in the midst of all of this, we've had the Iranians, or at least we suspect the Iranians, uh, did a uh, drone strike on an Israeli managed tanker that killed an American and a a Romanian uh, mariner. Talk to us about where we're going and what all this means, because it, to, to say it's a tinderbox, confused and potentially negative in repercussion, I think would be a modest understatement.
5: Well, no, absolutely. And, and that, that's a really full plate. So just a couple of thoughts here that I think are germane. Please
0: feel uh, free to dine on it in any manner right. you see fit, Ilan.
5: <laughs> Will do. Um, so on Afghanistan first, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, the Taliban clearly is surging in Afghanistan. They ha- They feel like they have the wind at their back. Um, and the idea that the absence of U.S. and Western forces will somehow breed moderation uh, in the Taliban is is completely counterintuitive and, frankly, ahistoric, because from the Taliban's perspective, uh, their strategy of sustained what they would call resistance uh, to Western encroachment is paying dividends. The U.S. is out and absent uh, them accidentally crossing some red lines uh, the U.S. isn't coming back. And and I think uh, that's sort of the uh, the center central pivot of sort of how they're thinking about things. You know, a, a red line, for example, would be um, the recreation of conditions leading up that led up to 9-11 uh, 20 years ago. Um, the idea that Afghanistan could become uh, a safe haven for terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, I, I think the Taliban has sort of learned from that lesson. They're likely to be more judicious about... Uh, about allowing themselves to be a platform, but that doesn't mean that all of the other negative effects relating to a Taliban takeover, uh, the curtailing of human rights, the curtailing of women's rights, uh, sort of religiously imposed uh, draconian social norms, um, that's all uh, likely to come back and likely to come back in force. And uh, Afghanistan and the Afghan people understand this very well, which is why you've seen uh, over the last several weeks, this veritable exodus of uh, Afghan uh, civilians, but also members of the Afghan military who have fled to countries like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, And last month, uh, the Uzbeks, uh, who are uh, chomping at the bit to create a regional strategy uh, to deal with Afghanistan, with them at the helm, of course, held a big uh, multinational conference in uh, Tashkent um, that was celebrated by uh, and and attended by, you know, the Russian foreign minister, the Chinese foreign minister. um, And the U.S. uh, really sort of wasn't present at that conversation. The highest ranking official that the U.S. sent uh, to this confab was a deputy USAID administrator. um, And the signal that the Taliban and everybody else in the region really received from this was that, you know, the U.S. is out and the U.S. isn't coming back in absent something truly catastrophic. So, Uh, I I think this is sort of the dynamic that the Taliban are looking at, and it's not one that breeds moderation.
0: And Iraq?
5: The interesting dynamic that's happening in Iraq, uh, to my mind, is the degree to which uh, the sort of the sub-state level violence is escalating. Uh, There are credible reports that the IRGC, the head of the IRGC intelligence wing was uh, in Baghdad uh, in mid-July, essentially ginning up Shiite proxy militias to escalate their attacks on U.S. forces, even as those U.S. forces uh, reconfigure and and sort of contemplate a reconfiguration of their role uh, in the country. So uh, very clearly here, the Iranians are pressing their advantage. And that's really the common theme that you're seeing in Iranian strategy. Um, The the Iranian attacks on uh, maritime shipping Uh, the sort of the attempt the drone attack um, from uh, a week and a half ago, the more recent attempt by the, by RGC forces to take over a separate vessel. It's all indicative of an Iran that is being increasingly assertive uh, in what it considers its primary strategic domain. And here I think politics really plays an important role because a day ago, Uh, We saw the inauguration of Iran's new, uh, what we would call hardline president, um, uh, very much uh, a puppet of the supreme leader. The election that happened earlier this summer was stage managed to ensure that this gentleman, Ibrahim Raisi, would rise at the top. Uh, It seems an awful lot like Raisi is being groomed to take over as supreme leader, Uh, of Iran once the current Supreme leader Ali Khamenei leaves the political scene in a few years. Um, And so what you're seeing is an Iran where positions are hardening, uh, they're uh, acting in a more aggressive strategic fashion, uh, they're less compromising. And it raises an interesting question, which I think the Biden administration is currently grappling with, uh, which is that, you know, what if Iran's current obstructionist stance on a return to the nuclear deal isn't an act to 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 garner concessions? What if Iran really isn't interested in compromise? And what does U.S. policy look like then? I, I think that's a really interesting question that we're going to be looking at uh, for the next couple of weeks.
0: And and how does the international community? Right? I mean, the Biden administration has said we have to put international pressure that ships in international waters. Uh, the, you know, I mean, obviously there has been a very active proxy war. I mean, a, a major Iranian asset is sitting at the bottom of the ocean right now. Right? I mean, so this is not a um, th- this is this this is a real game that's going on between Israel and Iran. Um, where where does this go next?
5: Well, uh, to me, that's really I think the central question because just a couple of days ago, um, the Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz uh, held a press conference in which he uh, estimated, uh, you know, his estimate was that Iran is something like ten weeks away from uh, nuclear breakout. Um, and he, you know, his language was purposefully vague. Uh, he wasn't saying that Iran 10 weeks from now is going to go nuclear. Uh, what he was saying was, uh, as I understood it, that Iran has shortened the timeline to breakout, to nuclear breakout, to just 10 weeks. But nonetheless, the signal wasn't to the Israeli public. The signal was to the international community that amid escalating Iranian external hostility, Uh, Amid a lack of progress on the diplomatic front, uh, this sort of this hardening of domestic positions, uh, the Israelis are who have never taken sort of a unilateral military option off the table are sort of dusting off those plans and are looking askance at Europe and at the United States because uh, there's a sense uh, in Jerusalem that things are really moving towards ahead. Dov,
0: your sense on all of this and where we're headed and how the administration needs to think about where we are?
1: Well, um, I'm in agreement with uh, what uh, Ilan just said. I mean, it seems to me, first of all, that the Iranians probably made a mistake in hitting that tanker just because it was Israeli-owned. An American citizen was killed. A Romanian citizen was killed. Uh, the administration really had, was essentially backed into uh, condemning the Iranians for this. Uh, I suspect they wouldn't have liked to have done it, because they want these negotiations to go ahead, even though Raisi clearly is no fan of them, and Nor is the supreme leader. Um, but uh, the admit, Washington had no choice, and the British jumped on board as well. The other person killed was a Romanian. Uh, so Europeans uh, have been brought into this. Uh, the Iranians may be pushing their luck a little bit. Uh, they Clearly they coordinate with Hezbollah a lot, whether the 19 rockets that Hezbollah fired uh was in coordination with the iranians or not i think the assumption will be that it was uh you heard about what they're doing in iraq uh clearly they and and raisi is not the kind of guy who's going to put a stop to this uh and so given that the republican uh the the uh, the guard is in any event the guard corps is is uh reporting pretty much directly to the supreme leader this is all coordinated and uh I, uh, it's going to make it very, very difficult for the people in the administration who really do want to deal with uh, Iran. I mean, after all, several of them made the first deal. Uh, it's getting harder and harder for them to do so. Uh, and the Israelis are pretty much saying we can go it alone. Uh, I believe even Bennett, the prime minister, said as much. Uh, they're not being as vocal as Netanyahu was. They're not showboating. Um but the message is very, very clear. They're not going to tolerate this any more than Netanyahu would have. Um, And they're sending a message to the Iranians. There are limits beyond which we're just not going to sit tight.
0: Well, right. I mean, but that was the whole point of the Israeli strategy over the last 15 years to come alongside uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia and and nations in the Gulf and create that alliance uh, that would allow them operational well, yeah, flexibility uh, and except, m- 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 be able to militarily one. act without the United States if necessary.
1: Yeah, but that one also is fraying a little at the edges. The, uh, there are more and more reports about tensions between the uh, Emirates and the, and the uh, Saudis. Uh, we're kind of reverting back to where the GCC always was, which is uh, the talk is more than the actual game. Um, sure, they'll, they'll allow the Israelis to overfly but at the end of the day, it, it's the Israelis who have to do the job. And, and the difference between now and, and under Netanyahu and Trump and, and before Trump is that uh, the Israelis aren't being loudmouthed about it. They, they, nobody accuses Benny Gantz of being a, a showboat. Uh, and when he says something like what he says, uh, I think everyone, including the Iranians, take that very seriously.
0: I, I think that the word the, the last word anybody would ever attach to Benny Gantz is showboat. Uh, I think anybody who 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 knows him. Although it would be interesting to see, right? I mean, the Iran nuclear deal was designed to try to help avoid this outcome, right? And then we sort of changed the outcome. I would have put more pressure on him, but it had a specific role. It is now not achieving. That specific role and may may specific outcome and may well have accelerated it, which is what's problematic.
1: Well, but a, a lot of people are making that argument that if you look at what Trump did, pulling out of the original deal, putting the, the sort of maximum pressure on Iran, it, it clearly failed. There's no way to, to get away from it. It failed.
0: We've got a very brief amount of time left. Uh, I'm going to go back to uh, Brian. The uh, United States Navy uh, released its investigation of the Bonhomme Richard fire. Uh, it, you know, at the time, there was a concern that it was arson when uh, one of uh, the Pacific Fleet's most important assets burned at Pierside in San Diego uh, and will will have to be scrapped. Uh, Year long investigation. Navy has concluded that it was arson a disgruntled sailor set various fires. Um, there are those who say it's great that we have an investigation. Why the investigation takes so long? And at the end of the day, the shit still burned uh, to the waterline, pier side. From your standpoint, what what are what are the takeaways from from this incident?
4: Yeah, well, it's a tragedy, obviously. Um, what's interesting is you've got one sailor who uh, disgruntled decided to start uh, a fire, um, disabled fire. Uh, Fighting equipment, so uh, took hoses off the ship, damaged other hoses apparently, um, so made it more difficult to to initially fight the blaze. So one person, um, you know, with sufficient motivation can result in the loss of a fleet asset, which is just shocking. Uh, you know, a four billion dollar ship that was in a maintenance period when theoretically hundreds of people should have been around to try to address uh, a fire that starts. Uh, So clearly there's, there's changes needed in terms of how the Navy manages maintenance availabilities and deals with fires and monitors firefighting equipment. Um, You know, it should not be the case that a single person would be able to execute this kind of operation that, um, you know, seemed to have the same kind of effect as if a trained team of uh, attackers had come on board and and tried to eliminate the ship. So the, uh, the Navy's got some, some work to do in terms of remediating this. Um, You know, the other concern, which is, you know, as a former, Uh, XO dealing with sailors, Um, you got to be able to, you have to understand your people. This sailor was evidently very unhappy with the Navy, had been unhappy for a long time, had had a series of disciplinary problems. Um, And you kind of have to wonder also, you know, as a leader, you've got to be able to be a little bit more intrusive with your people and understand you know, who is it that might be a insider threat? And we do that a lot now in terms of security risks, but you also have to think of it in terms of physical uh, security as well. And I am I think there's gonna have to be some uh, in, inward facing uh, discussions within the Navy about how do we manage people and monitor um, their potential for, for for executing this kind of uh, attack on their shipmates. Uh, but those are a couple of the big takeaways that uh, you know come out of a very tragic and disappointing event.
1: Vago, you know, what's really shocking about this Um, Back right after the Falklands War, John Lehman, Secretary of the Navy, put together a group, I was one of the members of that group, that looked at why the Sheffield sank, the British ship, when it was hit by an Exocet missile. And it turned out that one of the big problems was they didn't know how to control fire and smoke. So here we are, literally four decades later, and the Navy is still having that problem. It, It is Unbelievable.
0: Um, you know, I, look, I mean, I think in this particular case, there were mitigating uh, issues. And as, as you uh, remember, Dove, uh, you know, excellent bringing Sheffield up, right? I mean, it was, it was the fact that the motor casing broke off and, and created a fire. And if I recall, it was in the Mestex uh, where uh, the, the missile struck and that running rocket motor, you know, contributed to uh, some, of the, some of the challenges on the ship. Uh, and I think that people forget that for all of their sophistication and their, all of their survivability, Ships are sort of very big Swiss watches. Whether uh, you know it's a six thousand ton submarine or it's a it's a hundred thousand ton aircraft carrier. Uh, but it it but and this was pure side on a Sunday. Not many people aboard the ship, right? I mean, so there were you know if if you wanted to cause mischief, there were ways to cause it, especially with the ship in various states of dismantlement uh, for for repair. Right? You can't shut watertight doors. Systems are deactivated so that folks can weld and cut and do all those other things. So, you know, it's an unfortunate incident. But as 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 Brian said, even in the most unfortunate incident, there are there are lessons, uh, just like at the beginning of the pandemic. Hey, look, you know, an aircraft carrier was knocked off of uh, rotation uh, because of the spread of covid. What if when she was doing um, Liberty Call somewhere, some sailor is given a bottle of cl- what he thinks is or she thinks is cleaning fluid, puts it on all the railings. And all of a sudden we have a biological attack on a ship that that kills hundreds of sailors, right? Uh, would would be would be the sort of thing that we, we need to think a little bit asymmetrically uh, on on this stuff. Everybody look, thanks look, so much. Uh, Go Vago, ahead. Uh, yeah.
1: You, you're right that there are mitigating circumstances at the at the outset. It, but that's the same thing like saying Pearl Harbor happened on a Sunday. Um, clearly point. No, but clearly there's you know once the, the alarm goes up the, it, something more could have been done. You just don't lose a ship like that, uh, even if a fire starts, you know, and, and even if it's under repair and overhaul, uh, they just somebody fell down on the job.
0: I uh, couldn't agree with you more. We we did a whole series of shows. Dev. you were kind enough at the time to join us on those. Uh, Agreed. Uh, Brian, last uh, question. 30 seconds, Brian, I'm going to come back to you. Um, Any lessons from how the fire was fought? Because there was a lot of uh, criticism. Obviously, armchair quarterbacking is easy. Uh, It's a little bit different when you're at Pearside facing a a ferocious fire. But any lessons for how the fire could have been fought better? Because again, Forrestal, Ariskany, Enterprise all taught us how to be better firefighters at sea
4: yeah so there there were some lessons um you know they're gonna have to be digested by the navy and you know, getting um getting the the heat out of the the ship you know ventilating the ship you know in a lot of cases ends up being um a better course of action, even though it might introduce new air and new oxygen to the fire. Uh, in some cases, that's the better course of action. I think that's one lesson that we learned here is that they need to ventilate the ship more quickly, get the smoke and the heat out um, to try to minimize the damage and improve the conditions for firefighters, uh, even though that, that might cause the fire to continue. Uh, so that was one of the big lessons in terms of firefighting. The other thing I would say is, you know, in the before the fire, you know, making sure that you have uh, appropriate backup measures for firefighting in place when you do maintenance, that's kind of you know, maintenance management 101, uh, and also because this guy had gone and disabled firefighting equipment, you know doing the frequent inspections on those to make sure that they actually are ready to go. Um, that's another element that came out of this as well.
0: Everybody, thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. hope you guys have a great weekend and a great week and looking forward to having you back on again next week. Thanks a lot. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell.
4: We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that.